Sounds like some of us have our voices back today. We'll see if we can get through without sneezing or coughing. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. You're with my colleagues, Lisa Garvin, Layla Tassi, and Laura Johnston. It's a Tuesday, and it's a rare Tuesday where it's popping with so much news we can't discuss it all. How are you? Okay. All right. All right. (laughs) Let's get to it. What new ranking places Ohio's top employer, the Cleveland Clinic, in last place compared to top nonprofit hospitals throughout America? Laura Johnston, this is a big deal. They're in last place for this. Yeah, this is uh, this is not the first place Cleveland Clinic. This is all about charity care. The Loan Institute, which is a Massachusetts think tank, looked at U.S. nonprofit hospitals and what they're doing to directly benefit their communities. And the clinic's at the bottom of these rankings. They had the largest fair share deficit at $261 million. And that's out of 3,600 hospitals. So hospitals argue that they provide this huge community benefit as investment through education, research, financial assistance, Medicaid shortfalls, subsidized services, outreach programs. But Loan says those categories look impressive, but they don't directly help the people living and working near these hospitals. So the clinic, MUH actually, Julie Washington has a really in-depth story on this saying, We do a lot. It just isn't counted by these rankings. But there are questions on on how much that really helps the people on the ground. Yeah, this is a very objective ranking. And they're not pulling in any gray areas and nonsense. And they're saying that they compared what the tax exemption is to the clinic because they're a nonprofit. They don't have to pay taxes on all that property they own and what they spend on helping the community. And what was it, 200 $16, $246 million deficit, biggest deficit of any hospital in America. And the clinic can say all it wants to about, well, we train doctors that, you know, the the Institute points out, yeah, but you get subsidy for that and they don't all stay in town. A lot of them leave. Right. This is an apples to apples comparison of hospitals across America. And it backs up what people like the late councilwoman Fannie Lewis was saying 20 years ago, the clinic does not do enough to help the community where it is situated. It's this isolated institution surrounded by poverty that doesn't reach out enough. And maybe it's a wake up call and they'll try to do more. Is yeah. that what the clinic seemed to say? Well, they kind of kept pointing to all the stuff that they do do that is not included in this. And they, in 2019, they said their community benefit was the highest they've ever had. It increased 12% to $1.16 billion, But that's their accounting. And so the issue is, you know, this Medicaid reimbursements, they say we don't get paid back for all of the services we provide. Medicare and Medicaid don't pay enough. But there's it's it's very squishy, right? Because the federal government actually has to pay a, a big chunk of money to the Medicaid um, for hospitals that provide a lot of it. And then you're right. You talk about the doctors that they train. Well, those doctors, especially clinic doctors, might be in super special um, just but- uh, they're not they're not providing the physical the primary care, or the ER care that people need. And then also this idea of research. I mean, is the research helping or are they helping drug companies? Are they getting NIH money? So yeah, there's a lot of stuff here. The research claims seem bogus. Look, here's the thing. Every other hospital is doing the same thing they are. But, But when you look at them side by side, the Institute found them to be pretty severely lacking. I would hope they would step up. You're listening 
I was just going to say they looked at 22 Northern Ohio hospitals and actually the University Hospitals Regional Hospital and Richmond Heights ranked at the top. And they actually had a positive community investment of $700,000. Okay, well, a little bit of good news. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Here's the outrage story of the day. What are the latest steps by Ohio House Speaker Bob Cup and Senate President Matt Huffman to thwart the will of Ohioans opposed to gerrymandering? And what will it take to get them to follow the rules? Leila Tassi, I'm trying to figure it out. Are they just drunk with power and don't see it? Are they intentionally going as far over the line as they can so that when they're reined in, they can still stay over the line? Uh, this makes this one makes absolutely no sense. They're going to get spanked. It's going to be ugly for them. What are they thinking? Yes, all of the above, basically. <laughs> these these guys are ignoring the discovery requests from lawyers suing over the new state house and Senate district maps. They're arguing that a redistricting case schedule that was laid out by the Ohio Supreme Court doesn't require them to turn anything over. This was all laid out in a brief filed by the lawyers representing the Ohio Organizing Collaborative, the Ohio Environmental Council, and the Ohio Council on American Islamic Relations in one of the three lawsuits that's that are challenging these brazenly unconstitutional maps. Some, some of the lawyers involved with the case met on Friday to coordinate how to exchange discovery in the case. But in that meeting, lawyers for the two Republican legislative leaders on the redistricting commission, Cup and Huffman, said they don't plan to cooperate with any discovery requests. And for listeners who might not know what discovery is, it's the exchange of information between the parties in a legal case. And as part of that discovery process, groups suing over these maps have said that they plan to depose the seven members of the Ohio Redistricting Commission and that would make them all, you know, answer questions under oath. And that includes Governor Mike DeWine. Let, so, let, let, me, you know. let me let me interrupt you real quickly, though, just to make the, the difference. In a criminal case, the 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 defense has limited um, requirements to provide help to the prosecution. This is that you don't you have a right against self-incrimination in a civil case. You have to give everything up. There is no secrecy. Discovery means you give everything up. They give everything up and you arrive at the truth. So so there's no there's really never a defense for anybody in a civil proceeding like this to not provide discovery. That's right. But here's what Cup and Huffman's lawyers are saying. They they're citing a court scheduling order which set the oral arguments for December 8th, and that included dates in, in the days leading up to the hearing for each side to summarize their case in written briefs. But the scheduling order doesn't mention dates cutting off the exchange of discovery, and lawyers for all the sides in the case had, had requested some discovery deadlines. So they're saying they won't provide discovery without a court order telling them to do so. But that's like saying the judges did the, the the court didn't list in its documents that we have to wear clothes to court. Exactly, and we're not wearing clothes to court. It's, it's the most basic requirement of the. Uh, it, it's preposterous on its face. These guys are completely out of control. This it's is absolutely right. I mean, I I just I hope the court slams these guys as hard as they deserve because they are completely violating. The will of the people. What's interesting is the in the in this request filed by the plaintiffs, they're asking the court to appoint a special master to make sure there's no future shenanigans by these guys. And Dave Yost, who represents three other defendants in this, must have foreseen the same kind of antics because he made a request for a special master a week ago. <laughs>
Oh, man. This is going to be... <laughs> What's the deadline for this to, to conclude? It's like January, right? Well, <laughs> I, don't know, the, I don't know how we're going to get there. The oral arguments are December 8th. I think that's part of their plan. They're going to obfuscate and play games so much that they delay it. But that is completely counter to their duties. This is not the service that they are supposed to provide to the residents of Ohio. They're just violating every part of their duties. Um, I, <laughs> this one this one is mind-boggling. I mean, just like I couldn't believe that Pat DeWine wouldn't recuse himself from the case involving his father, which continues to be mind-boggling, we posted a story today that explains the difficulty in removing him beforehand. He could be disbarred afterwards for doing what he's doing, mm, but there's nothing yeah. to do to stop him beforehand. This is as outrageous. You have to provide your documentation. You got to show your work so that the Supreme Court can figure out whether you were as dastardly as you appear. Anyway, well, I good gotta stuff. Assume the, yeah, I got to assume the judge is going to be pretty annoyed by having to <laughs> issue a, an actual order to say you must provide discovery. <laughs> I, 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 you're getting to the point where there should be sanctions, where where they should be fined right, because right. they are so flagrantly violating the rules of the court. Um, we'll have to see. I'm, I'm waiting for the Supreme Court to weigh in, even if Pat DeWine is breaking all the rules to hear the case. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How did Ohioans get one step closer Monday to being able to compare judges on how they sentence criminals based on their crimes, their race, their gender, and other factors? Lisa Garvin, some good news coming out of the Ohio Supreme Court. Yes, it looks like the uh, the database the com it has commenced. So what happened was there's an eight hundred thousand dollar agreement for the University of Cincinnati to build a criminal sentencing database. So we're actually getting to the point where we're building the thing. Um, the Ohio Supreme Court and uh, the University of Cincinnati signed that agreement earlier this week. This is good so that the agreement is good through the end of June of 2023. So they've got about two and a half years to build this. Um, this was something that was championed by Chief Justice Maureen O'Connor. This is something that's been talked about since 1999. So it's, it's kind of exciting that something's actually going to happen. Um, they do want not just any database. They want a meaningful database. It's easily searchable for researchers, journalists, whoever would like to, you know, look at those st statistics. Uh, judges have been reluctant there's only about 34 of the 244 common pleas judges that have agreed or volunteered to be part of this database. But it appears that if you build it, they will come because more judges are now coming forward now that it seems a little more concrete that things are actually going to happen. There are uh, judges' names will not be listed in this. This is just looking at trends. They're not going to identify judges. That's not the goal. They just want to have these statistics out there just to show what disparities do, you know, do exist. Um, I think it's exciting. I, I, I wish University of Cincinnati well, and let's let's get on with it. I, I'm a little bit surprised you won't be able to see the judges' names. These are elected positions, and it would be helpful for voters to know if they have a judge by name who is harder on black defendants than white defendants or male defendants than female defendants or whatever. Uh, it, it Maybe if this overall... Uh, identifies big disparities that the next move will be to provide the identities of the judges. 
Well, and I guess they were saying that actually that information, you know, about by judges is actually available by looking at the docket, which journalists and other people do, you know, as a matter of course, but that's making people do the work. So, you know, I don't know. Well, maybe they- yeah, but I'd have to go through case by case for each judge right. mm-hmm. and add it all up. That's not readily available. This database could make it readily available, but maybe this was the compromise position to get a database started. Maybe this is the way the, the path forward and that it's an intermediary step. Right. Just we'll to see. get it done. Yeah. You're, li- you're listening to this week in the CLE. We talked about this after Labor Day, but now it's official. Where did the complete summer season rank for rain in Cleveland since they began measuring rainfall at the airport 84 years ago? I'm still feeling wet. <laughs> third. <laughs> Your shoes are soggy. Um, Cleveland saw 18.92 inches of rain this summer, according to an analysis of National Weather Service data, and that is the third highest uh, in those 84 years. Only 1972 and 1992 saw more rain. In 72, we had 20.6 inches. In 1992, we had 19.39 inches. So that's not that's not far off. Um, 91 actually was the least amount of rain, and it's kind of funny. They had just seven inches, so that's you know way less than half. Yeah, it was interesting the juxtaposition of 91 and 92, you know, the all-time least and almost the most. What what struck me about this summer is for, for most of it, it seemed like we had rain, but we had a couple of periods where we had a number of days in a row that was pretty glorious. Like, I think it was the first week of August. But I it, it I will remember this is the, the summer of gray. It just seemed like it rained and rained and rained. I just think it's funny that the, the grass never died. Other than we had the army worm scare in my backyard. But <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it never really got that brown. My water barrel, my rain barrel was always full. And so you never got to that period. You're like, I don't really need to mow the lawn this week. Like, nope, I'm still mowing it. Still green. Yeah, yeah, you didn't have to. You didn't have to water the plants. I mean, it was you know. Yeah, as yeah. a gardener, it's kind of spoiling for you, yeah. right? Yeah, right. I, my tomatoes are still exploding off the vine. It's been right. a, it's been a great and there's summer like there's always a the, silver lining. The forecast is all for the 70s, so we're not looking at, at much cold weather yet. But the summer high of 92 degrees came on June 29th. I'm just remembering the stretch of really hot days in August, right when all the kids went back to school and there were schools that were canceling for heat days. So, yeah, but yeah. yeah. Oh, well, we'll see what, what brings next summer. This summer goes down as one where it rained a lot. You're listening to this week in the CLE. How did Ohio make it a lot easier for the half million people in the state each year who lose their driver's licenses? Leila Tassi, this is actually a big deal. It helps a whole lot of people out. I I wish government would do more thinking like this to make their services more convenient. Yeah, we have State Senator Sandra Williams from Cleveland to thank for this one. She sponsored Senate Bill 68, which made it possible Ohio motorists can now order a reprint of their driver's license online instead of going in person to a deputy registrar's office. If your old license was lost, stolen, destroyed, mutilated, you can order an exact copy of it. But if you have to change information on it, you still have to go to the BMV and think about all the places you'd rather be than there. (laughs) So Ohio only allows one reprint of a driver's license between when it's first issued and renewed or between renewals, Uh, you know, but this is a change that, like you said, Chris, this will save as many as 500,000 Ohioans 
an in-person visit uh, each year to, you know, to to the BMV, which that's kind of staggering. Half a million people in Ohio are losing their driver's license every year. <laughs> the, the, this, Put it this in your wallet. Made, <laughs> this is made possible because of the change in the driver's license to the more secure form. When you get your license renewed now, they don't hand it to you there. They mail it to you. So if they can mail you the first one, they can mail you the second. Do you have to sign some sort of affidavit to say you've lost it? What What's to stop people I don't from just know. getting I, a duplicate sure. license? That's a very good point, but I'm sure there's something like that, right? You've got to, you know, there's there must be something that, yeah. Otherwise, you would have people just, you know, Getting I don't a, know, selling fake IDs. Well, or <laughs> just know. have a duplicate, and, you know, that, that they might want to have for convenience. Keep one in each purse. Yeah. They must, must have to <laughs> sign something under force of law that you have lost or can't find your license. But, you know, once you get the reprint, what if you find your other license? I guess you just have two. It's not like they can invalidate it if it's an exact copy. You're listening well, to This Week in the CLE. Why is Cleveland State University seeing notable increases in enrollment this fall while its counterparts elsewhere have seen drops they blame on the pandemic? Lisa Garvin, another bit of good news coming across Tuesday. CSU is ahead of the curve. This story really makes me feel good. I, I feel like CSU is the little university that could. I mean, they even got into like NCAA basketball, you know, a couple of years ago. But anyway, you know, uh, for this fall semester, their uh, enrollment is up 1% overall. Um, they did get... Uh, uh, a big bump in the freshman class. They, that's up 5% to over 1,800 students. Their grad school is up 20%. So they've got over 4,300 grad students that have enrolled this year. And their international student body has tripled in three years, or doubled, I'm sorry. It's now at 900 international students in uh, CSU Global, they call it. Most of the international students are science or STEM STEM. Uh, uh, majors. So yeah, I, this just uh, is exciting. I mean, the reasons they say there are several reasons for this, and a lot of it is local. Uh, they say the collaboration with the Say Yes program and the Cleveland Metro School District helped. Uh, the CMS, CMSD graduates make up almost half of the enrollment this year, 40%. And then they're also talking about how college prep and summer transition classes have helped. And then if you're doing 3.0 GPA or better, CSU will pay your spring tuition. So these are all things that they see as reasons for their their uptick in enrollment. Very exciting. Yeah, it's very cool. Uh, it's fascinating that Say Yes is already already having that effect because it's still fairly new. I mean, the, 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 by the time we get four years in, it'll be a full cycle, but it's already had the impact. So good for CSU. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. You heard it here first, but Ohio's public health director even sees it now. Has the recent coronavirus surge peaked? And where are the highest numbers of cases right now in Northeast Ohio? Laura Johnston, we're always ahead of the public health department. That's right. Well, that's not that hard, right? Uh, but I am still worried about <laughs> cold weather and the holidays and what it's going to bring. But for right now, we are on the downward slide of the curve. And Ohio Department of Health Director Bruce, Dr. Bruce Vanderhoff said that cases are peaking and beginning to drop. And he attributed that to us doing the work, the, the Ohioans wearing the masks and getting vaccinated. 
I mean, that's slowly still creeping up. But the seven-day average for new cases is down 22% in the last week from the 7,268 to 5,676. So that's still really high, but it is better. Um, The Ohio Hospital Association reports that one in six hospitalized patients in Ohio is positive for COVID. I mean, that's kind of still a jaw-dropping number. One in four in the ICU have COVID. And in Northeast Ohio, Medina is the most uh, cases per capita. I'm I'm wondering now whether the boosters that are now available are having an impact because we were starting to see breakthrough cases, not in hospitals, but there there were breakthrough cases, and enough people have gotten them now that I wonder if that's starting to depress it because that protects them from getting a a breakthrough case. I don't imagine Vanderhoff addressed that because we haven't addressed it yet. And he's always a few days behind us. <laughs> well, I don't know about the boosters, but we talked about this recently that is the, is COVID running out of hosts, right? Like if you have that many people who are getting COVID and you have the rest of the people who are vaccinated at some point is, you know, are you going to run out? Are we going to get to herd immunity? And obviously kids, it's an entirely different story there. Yeah. But... Rich Exner looked at that and and the numbers don't add up to anything no. close to herd immunity yet. So um, we, we just don't have enough people vaccinated and, and not enough people have been sick. Um, so we'll have to see. It's nice that it's, it, it has dropped. I hope you're wrong. That as we head into the. I, I mean, I hope I'm wrong too, but what do you think? No, I look, you know what I think? I got the booster yesterday. I have the, <laughs> immu- I have the immunocompromised thing, and uh, I don't want to go into the winter. It, 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 what blew me away about that is how easy it was to do it compared to last year when, you know, the vaccine queens pretty much had to help people get through. That um, They really have this system down. And when I was there, they said they've had a steady stream of people coming in to get it. We have such a division in, in America. We have people that are just dead set against any kind of vaccine because it's a political issue and, you know, the government wants to control your mind. And then there's people that will do anything they can to get the booster because they want the full protection. Um, I got to think that the booster will eventually start to have an impact so because it just will protect those people from getting the Delta variant, at least till the next variant rolls around. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost oversaw a big prostitution sting operation and snared a Northeast Ohio elected official. Leila Tassi, who is it? Oh, man. (laughs) The 64-year-old Elyria City Councilman Mark Jesse was arrested Thursday as part of this statewide prostitution sting. He faces a a misdemeanor charge of soliciting sex for money, and and he'll make his first court appearance uh, Wednesday in Elyria. He's he's been councilman for eight years. He, He faces opposition in November. So it could... I don't know. It could complicate his reelection effort. I don't know. But uh, this this statewide sex trafficking sting was named Operation Ohio Knows, as in Ohio knows you have to pay for sex, Mark Jesse. Apparently, the sting the sting took place from September 24th to October October 1st, and it led to 161 arrests across Ohio. Jesse was among 14 men from Elyria who were arrested, and so the way this all played out. They say the undercover detectives communicated online with him and arranged a 30-minute meeting with him. He agreed to pay $60 for sex during the meeting, according to the police, and, and he was arrested when he showed up for the meeting on Thursday in, in Illyria. 
And he agreed to speak with detectives without having an attorney present and admitted to needing to solicit sex for money. So, you know, Dave Yost put out... Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Dave Yost came out and painted this (laughs) as a huge human trafficking case. Right. You know, and and it was a prostitution thing. And, And when you do that, you kind of compromise human trafficking investigations. I mean, there, there are serious cases of predators getting young women, getting them under their control, driving them around and, and basically keeping them under their power. That's human trafficking. They're selling it. This is not that. This is your old fashioned prostitutions thing. And for Yost to put out the press release kind of conjoining all this stuff into human trafficking yeah. seems disingenuous. His statement was so strange. It said, he, he said, people who traffic other humans, humans are doing it for a really simple reason, money. And if there's no demand, then there will be no market. Reducing the demand means we reduce the number of people who are victimized by human trafficking. But it's sex. You're not going to reduce the demand. Maybe, maybe we should focus more on clamping down on the exploitation of others rather than on the demand for sex. I, that's just, that's just <laughs> yeah, such a strange sting. You know, why yeah. just, you know, setting up these guys to, to, you know, who are just, ugh, it's just depressing. This is not the right, you know, the, the, I've heard stories in the community about, about children being targeted on online and it's such a serious problem. Let's focus on that. You know, it's, it's, I just, um, you know, this this just seems like the lowest hanging fruit for this kind of of investigation. And to grandstand on it is a little bit shameless. And you're right. You can't you're not going to reduce the demand for sex, just like you can't reduce the demand for alcohol. Maybe Dave Yost should go back and study what happened during Prohibition. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. (laughs) We got time for one more. So let's do it. Did Kevin Kelly misstep when he opened the hearing that was called by his fellow Cleveland City Council members Monday when they went around him because of their dissatisfaction with how he has handled the federal stimulus money? Leila Tassi, I can't believe how he what he did. I just you keep looking. Where's the leadership from this guy? This seems like a major faux pas. I know we've had a few weeks of just really crazy activity regarding that half a billion dollar stimulus windfall. First, we had, you know, Kevin Kelly's out of the clear blue sky legislation that that encumbered 20 million dollars for that crazy, you know, vague broadband plan. And then we had Mayor Frank Jackson's folks calling what seemed like an emergency press conference to outline his priorities for spending the money. Then a few days later, all that stuff ended up in legislation that was introduced to city council. So then Carrie McCormick and and Councilman Charles Slife decided council had been left out of the loop long enough. They gathered up enough support to circumvent Kevin Kelly's leadership. And they called the special council of the whole meeting, which was held yesterday, to talk about how council wants to spend the money. And that really left Kevin Kelly feeling kind of chafed. And in the end, yesterday, at the end of this meeting, they voted unanimously to hold a series of up to five more meetings in the next few weeks to put together their own plan by November 1st. And they said that they would reconcile it with the mayor's wish list. But this is their way of reclaiming some kind of control over this process and not letting it be politicized in the mayor's race. And 
Robin Goyce said that this was a fascinating hearing because the first 40 minutes was basically Kevin Kelly laying out a timeline of decision making regarding this pot of money stemming all the way back to when Joe Biden signed the American Rescue Plan Act and walking council members through all of the opportunities that they had to give input and speak up. But then he left okay. the meeting because he had a all scheduling right. conflict. <laughs> right. So so let, let's stop and let's talk about that. So so here yeah. he finds out last week that his fellow council members are so frustrated by what's going on that they went and got signatures on a sheet to call yesterday's meeting on their own outside of him. And he showed some petulancy when they did it and said, yeah. you know, next time, just ask me first. So <laughs> so you would think a leader would have walked in yesterday and said, hey, look, I, I you know, I'm, I'm just distressed that all the anxiety you had about this. I'm glad that you made it apparent and we're going to have this discussion. So let's get to it. Let's break it down. You know, let, let's let's identify the topic areas we want to do. And, you know, I, I understand that somebody's suggesting a series of five meetings. Let's get it down. Lead it. Right. Instead, a 40 minute harangue about the history of how this got here. Who was that for? Who was his audience? I mean, this is a guy running for mayor in in, in under major pressure. And he's showing weakness. This is ineptitude. This was not leadership yesterday. This was whining. This was childishness. And then he leaves for, right. for a previous conflict. Cancel right. your conflict. Do your job and lead. I, I, I was shocked. I mean, I just keep seeing him making terrible blunders. The introduction of that broadband thing was was one of them. I mean, let's set aside 20 million for a broadband plan for which we've done no research and have no proposals and we've had no hearings. And, you know, and, and council members called it out. Like, what is this? What are, what are we doing? I, I'm, I'm just surprised at, at this. Is this what we would get from Kevin Kelly as mayor? Maybe. Yes. Yeah, probably. I mean, Kevin Kelly is, you know, he's the kind of leader who sort of sees himself as the smartest guy in the room. You know, I think Marty Sweeney before him was sort of the the leader who maybe bullied people a little bit, you know, you know, push them, push them into, uh, you know, their aligning with him. But we're yet to see a council president who convenes, who who brings people together, who kind of who tries to, uh, you know, understand where they're coming from. And, yeah, I think that that would be the kind of 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 uh, mayor that we would see in Kevin Kelly. And, yeah, for him to blow out of there. And then what happened after he left was council kind of turned on the guy the administration sent as their representative. They basically told him his presentation was half-baked and they didn't understand why he was even there because the meeting was supposed to be for council to speak independently about their spending priorities. And so everything, you know, from there, they well, ended up deciding we're going to set our own plan. November 1st, that, you'll, you'll see what council has to say. But that was the other clumsy move by Kevin Kelly. Here you have your fellow council members calling a meeting because they're not happy with how you've done. And you and, and he invited the administration to participate. That right. was not why these guys called the meeting. They were calling the meeting in defiance of the administration because the administration had put in a plan that they had no say in. This meeting was to talk about the council priorities, not have the administration present again. And Kelly unilaterally brought them in, according to our story. Another bad move. I, I just this campaign is fascinating because I guess when you're in the pressure cooker, you show your true character. And man, he's cracking. He's not making mm -hmm. good decisions. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Good discussion all. Thanks, everybody. Laura, it sounds like you're still dealing with the cold. Hope you feel better. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Layla. Thanks, Laura. Thank you for listening to this podcast.